Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Welcome to the second part of our Bible study on baptism. We're happy to have Alan Hitchin with us again this week. We have been talking about baptism and the principles from God's Word about baptism. If you have not had a chance to listen to our last episode, I want to encourage you to do that because Alan talks quite a bit about some of the fundamentals that the Bible teaches regarding baptism. Uh, is it sprinkling and pouring? Is it immersion? We talked a little bit about the controversy in the religious world uh, regarding baptism, and we also looked at baptism of John compared to the baptism of Jesus and, and the baptism that we all have today. So, uh, Alan, first and foremost, thanks again for joining us for a second podcast. There's so much information to talk about regarding baptism. Uh, I know that you have more to say about it. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here this morning and get the opportunity to share with those who are interested some of the things that God has to say about baptism. Yeah, so Jeff, I guess you and I are just going to take turns answering or asking questions, I should say, of Alan. So you want to do you have any uh, initial thoughts on what we've been talking about? And then you want to ask him the first question? No, let's just go ahead and get into it. You know, in our previous episode, we were talking about a lot of different views or perspectives on baptism, like who should be baptized and what element it involves and why they should be baptized and just a, a number of different perspectives. And I think maybe one of the things we might want to mention or, or might want to talk about uh, off the bat on why do you think there really are, you know, so many different conflicting uh, perspectives and views on baptism? You know, that's a that's a fascinating question. It's something that I've thought about for many, many years now, because once you go through the scriptures, uh, Jesus' statements at the end before he's resurrected about the power of baptism, importance of baptism, all of the examples in the book of Acts and all of the teachings on it, it, it seems very, very clear. And one of the conclusions I've drawn, Paul makes an interesting point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as he talks to the Corinthians about the pride and arrogance of the world that God wanted to destroy. And Paul makes the point there that God has placed into the gospel what he calls foolish things, things that, that, are, that don't exist, things that are uh, looked down upon by wise people, and he, he even puts Christ's crucifixion into that category. He says, to us, it is the power of God, but to the Jews and to the Gentiles, it's the foolishness of God. And so what I have found after studying the scriptures many years is that many of the, quote, weak things that God has placed into the gospel have become controversial. And because, because they are weak things, man is always tempted to, to go ahead and modify it or even eliminate it because of that foolishness. And so I think we'd have to put baptism into that category, and maybe we could even think about Naaman. So when Naaman went to Elisha, he had expectations. He had expectations of exactly how God was going to heal him, and, and he thought it was going to be some uh, fantastic or elaborate. And when Elisha said to him, go dip seven times in the Jordan River, uh, it made him mad. 
he he got so angry that he was just going to go home. He said, "We've got better rivers in in where I come from than this muddy Jordan River." And his servants sat him down, and and they said, "Naaman, if he'd asked you to do something hard, wouldn't you have done it? Why not do this this simple thing?" And of course, he did. He dipped once and twice and three times, and nothing happened. And I'm sure his uh, his emotions must have been raising and raising until the sixth time, and then of course the seventh time. He came up out of that water with a with the skin of a little child, and so God chose a foolish thing, and and it almost caused uh, Naaman not to dip in the Jordan River because he thought it was a foolish thing, and and we see this throughout the scriptures where God asks people to do things, like to asking Moses to pick that that staff up by the tail when it had turned into a serpent, or like telling the Jews to look at that statue or that brazen serpent that was put up on the banner. And so when we when we look at baptism, what we see is God has been very clear, but we we see that there's there's very little controversy on faith, uh, very little controversy on repentance and confession. But with baptism, there is a lot of controversy, even though in many respects there's a lot more scriptures on baptism than there is on repentance and confession, yet repentance and confession receive no real uh, controversy at all. I think the, the possibility exists. Paul, Paul speaks in 1 Timothy chapter 4 of uh, the doctrines of demons and how men who are branded in their conscience as with a hot iron are used by Satan as his ministers, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, to proclaim doctrines that make things confusing. And I think that that's what's happened, that we've, we've gotten into these controversies about the mode of baptism, the purpose of baptism, the importance of baptism. And I hope after the podcast today, everybody's going to see that the scriptures are not the problem. The scriptures are clear. Scriptures make it obvious that baptism is essential. But these controversies seem to have arisen based on the fact that people see baptism as something that doesn't have any value. It's not important to them because, as I said earlier, it, it, they consider it a, a foolish thing. Well, and if, I was going to say, if people are interested in uh, you know reading more about the, the case of Naaman, Second uh, Kings uh, chapter 5, you know, I sometimes wonder if there's also maybe a historical um, reason you know in the sense that you know if you go back into like the middle ages and just before the the reformation with you know charges against the catholic church and you know the selling of indulgences or you know I, people would say works based salvation and the reformers come along and they say in um, in distinction to that they say well no it's not works based salvation it's it's grace only faith only and you know nothing you do can earn your salvation and they lump you know baptism you know being a, an act that someone does you know under that uh canopy and i sometimes wonder if if that and the protestant reformation also kind of influence people's thinking about baptism being a work uh meriting salvation and therefore you know not something we should be uh, involved with or it's something you do after you're saved i've always wondered about that too yeah that's an interesting point jeff uh you know, the scriptures are very clear that there's going to be a falling away and that the falling away is going to bring in many doctrines. As Peter said in Second Peter 2, as there were false 
prophets among the people, so there will be false teachers among you bringing in destructive heresies. And then Paul saying that the falling away must come first, and the man of sin will be revealed, who sits in the temple of God, setting himself forth as, as though he is God. And so as we go through the, the history of the, of the church, and we see the titanic forces that are that are going on through the history of the church. We see the the rise of the Catholic Church and what we now call the thousand year dark ages. And if you have an opportunity, uh, Schaff's history of the Christian Church, which is an eight volume set, and he just goes through and charts all the things that were going on, the intrigues and the the ungodliness and the introductions of new doctrines. And then, of course, during the Protestant Reformation, we have a new set of very, very intelligent and powerful people, and many of them had different takes on baptism. Uh, the uh, John Calvin and the Presbyterian Church and and uh, Cramner and the Anglican Church and then the Baptist Church and the Lutheran Church, and they all, uh, in one way or another, modified or, or changed the teachings of the Catholic Church on what baptism actually is. And so by the time we, we get to our culture with all of the different denominations, I think the last time I looked, there's like two or 3,000 different churches in America, and they are all teaching based on these historical uh, uh, changes in baptism, and not only that, but the the thinking of people today. So we end up with a hodgepodge of 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 different teachings. You have Billy Graham saying, "Just just accept Christ as your personal Savior and join the church of your choice." And uh, that's not at all what Jesus said. Jesus prayed that we would all speak the same. Or excuse me, Paul said we should all speak the same thing, and Jesus prayed that we would all be one. But there's no oneness on the doctrines of baptism. And as I said, Satan is working. Satan is bringing these doctrines in. He's trying to confuse the, the, the truth as much as he can. And Paul dealt with that, too. He said that if you don't have a love for the truth, there will be strong delusions that can lead you uh, astray. And so love for the truth, uh, comparing our beliefs on baptism to what the scriptures actually say about baptism, and then rejecting those things, uh, kind of like Peter said, although it's a different context, but we too have vain manner of life that's handed down from our fathers. And the difference is that the uh, Gentiles had idolatry, but what we have is uh, denominational thinking, which has divided up the truth into parcels, depending on which church you're a part of. And, and of course, all of them claiming that they have the truth makes it very confusing for people. Well, and I think that's a good point. And I think it's also a basis of why we keep referring people, you know, back to the scriptures, telling them to study the scriptures. You know, don't take our word for it. You know, don't necessarily take your parents' word for it or your priest or your rabbi or your pastor's word for it. You know, nurture that love for truth and keep coming back to the scriptures and understanding what the scriptures say and properly harmonizing them and looking at all the examples and and all those good things. Right. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, Alan, in the, the last podcast, we looked at passages like Acts 2.38, you know, Peter on the day of Pentecost, 
uh, convicted those who put Jesus on the cross. They asked him, you know, men and brethren, what should we do? He told them in verse 38, repent and let every one of you be baptized. We talked about the baptism of John and how that was different from the baptism of Jesus. We looked at Acts chapter 10, you know, Cornelius and his household and how God showed uh, through giving them uh, the, the miracles that they would be accepted by God. And then we looked at like Acts chapter 22, where even with Paul himself, when he was still known as Saul of Tarsus, he was told, you know, in Acts chapter 22, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. So we looked at some of those passages and others last week that are kind of the fundamental passages regarding baptism. Are there some other scriptures that you can discuss that help us to understand the power of baptism as well, in addition to those that we talked about? Yeah, you know, Brian, actually there are. There are some very, very powerful uh, scriptures. But before we can talk about them, I want to remind us that Jesus often used parables to, as he said, reveal things that have been hidden from the foundation of the world. So when we read his parables, like the parable of the sower or the talents or the prodigal son or the good Samaritan, we're we're learning things that uh, are very helpful and we see them through the pictures that Jesus has created. And, and very similar to parables is the concept of types and antitypes. And what God reveals to us is that many of the things that he did in the Old Testament were done not only to bless those people, but also to give an illustration. Like Jesus said, as, the, as Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be raised. And so he's using this type and antitype which I think the best human illustration is the old typewriter. Those of us who remember the old typewriter, it had uh, keys and you would push the key and a metal rod would come up and push onto the page and what was on the page was the type and the metal key was the antitype. So every time you pushed a T into the page, you got a, a, a representation of that T on the paper and so it's called the type. Well, the scriptures do that. Uh, God said that the Old Testament tabernacle is a type of the church in, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews spends about six or four chapters, uh, 8, 9, 10, 11. And he's dealing with different types and antitypes. And Peter talks about baptism in that way. And so I'd, I'd like to read part of 1 Peter chapter 3 so we can see. It, it says, when once the lo- divine longsuffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. So Peter reminds us of Noah and the ark, and the building of the ark, and the bringing of all the animals into the ark, and then Noah and his family, these eight souls, or Noah and his wife, and his three sons and their wives, and they were saved through the water. And of course we understand that. Noah preached, he he told the people there's going to be a flood, If people got on the ark, they were saved. If they didn't get on the ark, they were not saved. But then if you notice in verse 21, it says there is also an antitype which now saves us. Now this is the New King James Version, but they've they've taken the Greek word antitupos and they've just given English word to it, so it's an antitype. There is an antitype which now saves us, baptism. So baptism is like the key on the typewriter, and Noah's Ark is like the type that's put on the the page. 
So if you were to take the power of baptism and put it onto a piece of paper, it would look just like Noah's Ark. So in exactly the same way that God saved Noah and his family through the water with the ark, he saves us today through the water of baptism. So he says there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. So God makes it very clear in this passage that those in the ark entered into a covenant with God and were saved. And so those who are baptized enter into a covenant with God and are saved. Those who were not in the ark had no covenant with God and they perished. And those who are not baptized have no covenant with God and perish. So this, this is the first of about four different uh, type antitypes or figures or parables that God gives regarding baptism. So in this first one, uh, just separate from everything else God has said about baptism, as far as Jesus saying, he that believes and is baptized will be saved, or Peter saying, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Here's God saying, baptism is the true antitype or the true spiritual reality of what Noah and his ark only pictured. So I find that to be one of the most powerful illustrations of the necessity of baptism because no one could argue if you didn't get on the ark, you could still be saved. That was an impossibility. All flesh perished who were not in the ark. So when people say today, well, baptism is not really necessary to salvation, I can often counter it with, well, was Noah's ark necessary for salvation? God says they're the same. So that would be one of the ones that uh, that illustrates this. Yeah, and it's interesting how in the passage you read there, First Peter chapter 3, verse 20, it talks about, as you pointed out, you know, we're saved through water. Those eight souls were saved through water. And to your point about the parallels, you know, when somebody thinks on the surface that they have to go and be, quote unquote, dunked underwater. So you're saying I have to be dunked underwater. Well, you kind of touched on this last week as far as works uh, and the the idea that baptism is a work that God is asking us to do. And if you think about it, it's kind of a measure of our faith, right? Either we believe in and do it, or as you pointed out earlier, you consider it to be a foolish thing. And much like Naaman the leper, thinking it was foolish to go dip in the, the River Jordan because it was a dirty river. And in his mind, he should have been able to go and dip in a clean river. Sometimes people will not do things because it just seems foolish or unreasonable to them. And it sounds like, Alan, that they're, they're missing the point, water, uh, that water does in fact save us. And it is a work that we're illustrating when we actually perform the action of being baptized. Yeah, and I, I think that's what God is trying to teach us here that although this might seem foolish to men, uh, this is a very critical thing <clears throat> to God. And again, as we noted last week, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is the heart of the gospel. As a matter of fact, Paul says, it is the gospel I preached. And like Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, to, to men that's foolishness, that God could save and put a king on his throne based on being crucified. That was to the Jews, an abomination, and to Greeks, it was foolishness. Well, the same thing in, in Romans 6. We die with him, we're buried with him, and we're raised with him in baptism. So, God made the parallel very clear 
but men, for some reason, as I say, men simply reject that or, or ignore that or don't want to look at that. And so I think that these illustrations or, or types and antitypes or parables that God has given, uh, they help bring us back to the proper perspective. And uh, the next one I, I would like to refer to is circumcision. Now, we know from the Old Testament that circumcision was something given to Abraham. And God told him after he changed his name from Abram to Abraham that he was going to be having a son. And he immediately said that I'm going to give you a new covenant. I'm going to give you a covenant of circumcision. And he then continues by saying that when I see the flesh of your foreskin circumcised, that's the token of the covenant between me and you. And so circumcision was the outward sign of a covenant. And then he went on to say, the uncircumcised male who is not circumcised shall be cut off from his people because he has broken my covenant. Now, that was something the Jews understood, and it's very easy to understand. Just read Genesis chapter 17. But then when Paul deals with this in Colossians, he says, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, this is not a physical circumcision. This is a spiritual circumcision. It, and he goes on to say, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So when we were, uh, when we were circumcised with this circumcision without hands, the old body of sin was removed from us. Well, when did that happen? Well, look at verse 12. He says, you were circumcised with a circumcision by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. So while we are under the water of baptism, God is performing a circumcision made without hands. And in that act of baptism, we enter into a covenant with God and everyone who is not baptized breaks that covenant. And so, as we continue reading in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made, a lot, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So, when I walk into the water of baptism with any individual, as well as when I did it myself, I'm walking into the water with someone who is dead. And they're dead because of all of the sins that they have committed in their past. And that death that they have endured is something that has to be removed. And so when we are buried with him in baptism, God cuts that part of us away. He cuts that part. He takes away all of our sins. Like Peter said, remission of sins. Your sins are sent away. Or Paul was told, wash away your sins. Or as it is pointed out here, you were dead in your trespasses but and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but he made you alive with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. So baptism is the circumcision of Christ. It is the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism. So I walk into the water with someone God tells me is dead in their trespasses and sins. 
I come up out of the water and this individual comes up out of the water having been buried with him in baptism and received the circumcision made without hands. So once again, using the power of circumcision as the Jews understood it in the Old Testament, God says, I've done the same thing with baptism today. So just like baptism is like Noah and the ark, baptism is also used or illustrated by circumcision. Yeah, and it's interesting how the, you have that analogy, as you mentioned, to the old law, where you had the physical removal of the physical flesh when somebody was circumcised. But under the law of Christ, it's a spiritual circumcision. And that's why when you know, Paul and, and others were being, you know, certainly the Gentiles, it was being demanded that they be circumcised. Well, it wouldn't have made sense, right, to physically circumcise them because we were now under a spiritual law where they would spiritually be circumcised through Christ, right? Yeah, and that's exactly right. And the interesting thing here is that even the women are circumcised. Under the old law, only the male, of course, could be circumcised. But under the new law, where there is no male or female, no bond or free, uh, all are, are one, each person receives the circumcision. Part of me is cut away. That sinful thing that causes me to be dead has been removed. It's almost like a surgery. You know, if I have cancer, I go in and they cut that part out of me so that I can be healed. And that's what God is doing. Uh, He is taking out that spiritual part of us that leaves us dead, and he removes that Uh, Ezekiel said it like this, I will take out their heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh. So that's how God describes it. And again, Ezekiel's talking about baptism. When we are baptized, the heart of stone is cut away. That's the circumcision of Christ. And the heart of flesh is now back within us. And of course, he's not talking about our physical heart. He's talking about the heart and soul that is the essence of our life. Yeah, good info. All right, so Alan, you've touched on Noah's Ark in 1 Peter 3 and how the Bible uh, uses that as an example of not only how they were saved by water, but we are as well through baptism. You just talked about circumcision, Colossians chapter 2, and how when we are buried with Christ in baptism, that is a circumcision of Christ, we're told in Colossians 2. And... um, So now it sounds like you want to talk a little bit about Moses and the Red Sea and what the Bible has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 about that being analogous to baptism as well. Yeah, and that that is an interesting point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And what he says there is that all of our fathers were under the cloud passed through the sea. So they had water above them in the cloud and water on both sides of them. So they were buried in the Red Sea, is Paul's analogy here. And at that moment, in verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses. Well, of course, baptism is never mentioned in the Old Testament. So Paul is not saying that this was something that was revealed in the Old Testament. He's saying that this is something well if we read verse 6 these things became our examples so their baptism into moses in the cloud and in the sea is very similar as a matter of fact it's identical to our baptism into christ 
in the water of baptism in which we are, we too are buried with him in the water as we saw in Colossians 2 and again in Romans chapter 6. So when the Jews were in Egypt, they were slaves. They were enslaved to Egypt. They were, they were under bondage and it made their lives bitter with hard service. And, and uh, they, when they left Egypt, most people think that after the, the last plague, the death of the firstborn, that they were now free. But they were still in Egypt, and they were traveling, and, and God did this on purpose. He took them to the, way, to the Red Sea so that Pharaoh would say, ah, here's my last chance. Now I can go, and I can kill them all. So he gets his army, and he chases after them, and here they are blocked by the Red Sea, and here comes Pharaoh and his army, and they're just crying out to Moses, and, and God says, what are you crying to me for? Go through the sea. So he opens the sea, and they pass through, and when they get to the other side, God closes the sea up, and all of their enemies are lying dead on the seashore, and now they see fully, we are free. We are free from the bondage of Egypt. And so Paul makes that point, that, we, that when that happened to them, they were baptized into Moses. So when we're buried into Jesus Christ, that's our baptism into Christ. And when they went through the Red Sea, that was their baptism into Moses. And of course, after baptism, they were no longer slaves. And Paul says exactly the same thing in Romans 6. He says, we were buried with him in baptism, and now we are no longer slaves of sin, Romans 6 and verse 6. And then finally, after baptism into Moses, they were under dominion through Moses. And after baptism into Christ, we are under the dominion of, of God through Christ. So the point I guess I'm making is this. Those people who say that baptism is not essential, it's not important, just accept Christ as your Savior, and baptism really doesn't matter at all. And my response to them would be, if God says that baptism is the antitype of Noah's Ark, if God says that baptism is the circumcision of Christ, and God says that baptism is identical to the children of Israel going through the Red Sea, then were those essential? Was Noah's Ark essential? Absolutely it was essential. Was circumcision essential? Yes, God said, without circumcision, you've broken my covenant. And what if they, they said, I'm not going in the Red Sea? Well, they would have died by Pharaoh's hand because Pharaoh's army was still intact before they went into the Red Sea. So baptism is essential, just like Noah's Ark, just like circumcision, and just like uh, the children of Israel going through the Red Sea. And so, as I say, these are just, these are types and figures that God has, has created for us and the apostles have revealed to us, which is what makes baptism such a critical ordinance. And as I say, when people today tell us, well, it's not important, the only reason they could say that is either they are ignorant of these scriptures or they don't believe these scriptures. And I find it interesting, even with these parallels, in both cases, water's involved. In both cases, immersion, burial, as you mentioned, involved. In both cases, setting aside or leaving behind a, you know, sin or, you know, previous lifestyle involved. Being slaved in slavery, leaving that behind. Uh, into a relationship 
involved in both. So yeah, it's like almost perfect alignment, a perfect picture of what happened then to what happens now. Very fascinating. Right. And, and, you know, sometimes in the, in the middle of the night, when I wake up, I just think to myself, how, how can I be sure with all of these conflicting doctrines, how can I be sure that what I'm teaching about baptism is correct. I don't consider myself to be a brilliant man. I don't consider myself to be more spiritually minded than these people. Uh, but what I try to do is I try to take all of the scriptures and draw the proper conclusion. And so what I will do sometimes at night is I'll just go through and, and go through them in my mind. First of all, Jesus said, he that believes and is baptized will be saved. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. When Peter was asked in chapter 2, what should we do? He said, repent and be baptized. And, and of course, I could go through a litany of scriptures like that, but I think the ones that help me the most are these, the ones about that Noah's Ark and circumcision and, and going through the Red Sea. Those are very helpful to me to help me understand that what we are teaching has to be the truth. And what they are teaching cannot be the truth because they fly in the face of these three types and antitypes or parables that God has given to us. Uh, Alan, one other thing, if we could touch on as it relates to the new birth in John chapter three, you know, one of the things that Jesus said was that unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So that would seem to be another passage that would emphasize the necessity of baptism. And, and that's right, Brian. The problem with the new birth is that it's very complicated. Uh, it's, it's very complicated, and therefore, it's really hard. What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be born of the Spirit? What does it mean to be born of water? And because those are such complicated questions, many times people don't relate that to baptism. But if you look at the subsequent scriptures, and I'm just going to quickly go through them, I'm not even going to quote all of them, but uh, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we, we know that the work of the Holy Spirit was to reveal the truth, and that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. We learn that in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, in the, the uh, putting on the whole armor of God. He says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so the, the Spirit works through the Word. And so when we read passages like 1 Peter 1.23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Well, that's being born of the Spirit, because the Spirit's the one who gave us the Word, and when we obey the Word, we are born again. Then in 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul said, I begat you through the gospel. In James chapter 1, of his own will, he begat us again with the word of truth. So the born of the Spirit is clearly the hearing of God's word and listening to it. But what about the water? Now, I've heard creative, creative uh, thoughts like when we were born, we came out of water because we were in the, the sack of, of the, the, the water in our mother's belly. And so the, some people say this is talking about the water of the first birth. But when you read passages like Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, where he says Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, 
that he might sanctify it, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word. Well, anyone who has a uh, an unbiased desire to know the truth, what is this washing of water? Now, with the word, we've already seen, begat from the word, begotten again by the word of God, God of his own will begat us through the word of truth. So that part is pretty clear. But this washing of water with the word, or Titus 3.5, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Or again, uh, as we look at these things, we then say, well, what's this water? Well, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 36, as, as Philip is preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch, they come and it says in, uh, in that passage, they came to a certain water. Wasn't anything special. He just, he just saw water. I don't know if it was a pond or a river or, or what it was, but they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, Behold, here is water. What hinders me to be baptized? Now, Philip had every opportunity to say, Why are you saying that, eunuch? All you have to do is accept Christ as your personal Savior. Why are you saying that you need to be baptized? But Philip doesn't. He says, If you believe, you may. And then when Peter is preaching to Cornelius' household and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, of course, that's the Spirit. But then what does he say? Can any forbid the water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So when we put all this together, as I said, it's a little more complicated. It's not as easy as Noah's Ark or going through the Red Sea or even circumcision. But it's just as critical. Uh, we are born of water when we are baptized in the water. That's what Peter said. Can any forbid the water that these should not be baptized? I don't know how he could have made it any clearer. Baptism, the water of baptism is what we are commanded. He commanded them to be buried in the water in the name of Jesus Christ. So you say, well, how do you know they were buried? Well, because Paul said we were buried with him in baptism. And as we see with the Ethiopian eunuch, after he said, what hinders me to be baptized, they both went down into the water and they both came up out of the water. So when Jesus describes being born of water in the spirit, he's describing the process of, as Paul said in Romans chapter 10, how shall they hear without a preacher? Well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes... Now that means he's born of the Spirit because he believes what the Holy Spirit has revealed. Then is baptized, he's born of the water. Now when we are born of water and the Spirit, then we are born again. And Jesus said, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you've been born again. So the figure here is, and again, this is a parable. I, I can't be in this world unless I'm born through my mother and father. My mother and father brought me into the world, and of course this was God's great blessing, but they were the means by which each one of us came into the world. Well, how do we come into the church? We are born of water and the Spirit. As Peter, or excuse me, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, having cleansed the church by the washing of water, baptism, with the Word, the Spirit, we are born again through water and the Spirit. So, when we add up the ark, the circumcision, the 
going through the Red Sea and this new birth, we come, we have to draw a conclusion. I mean, God has just been too clear. We have to draw the conclusion. Baptism is essential for salvation, just like the ark was essential for salvation. Circumcision was essential for the covenant relationship with God, and going through the Red Sea was essential to be freed from the bondage of, 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 of Egypt. And then finally, uh, we can't even be born into the world unless we're born the first time, and we can't be born again unless we are. We hear the word of God, we believe it, and then we're baptized. Yeah, and there's so much that can be said there. Uh, you really appreciate you taking the time, Alan, to help explain the new birth, what that means. You know, last week you were talking also about Romans chapter 6, and it, it, along with the many passages that you gave, you know, that talk about this new birth. And one thing I like about Romans 6 is it's talking about newness of life, you know, and it says in verse 3, you know, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And then, of course, 5 and 6 talks about, you know, being united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And then verse 6 talks about, you know, our old man was crucified, right, put to death that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And so when you think about verse 7 there, talking about he who has died has been freed from sin. Well, that's where baptism comes into play, right? It, it allows us to put to death that old man and to walk in this newness of life as a new person, if you will, from a spiritual perspective. Yeah. And of course, that is what circumcision is, is the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh, or as Paul puts it there, that that is removed from us. And so circumcision is definitely in Romans 6, and so is the new birth. We were dead, we are buried, we are raised to walk in a new life. We're born again. We are a new creation, and, and that's you know, Paul says in Galatians 3.27, as many of us as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things have come. And so that's the new birth. So we are baptized into Christ. When we're in Christ, we're a new creation. And old things have passed away and everything's become new. So when, when you start reading these scriptures with all of these other things in your mind, you see it fitting together like a hand into the glove. Uh, there's just no question that God has integrated baptism into the new covenant using Noah's Ark, using circumcision, using the entrance of the children of Israel through the Red Sea into the freedom of being a new nation and now the new birth and all of this you can read in Colossians 2 you can read it in in Romans 6 so just like you say there's such a such a clear uh, composite picture of the power and as I said at the beginning of our podcast um, there's more scriptures. I mean, if you look at all these scriptures, and we haven't even covered them all yet, but if you look at all these scriptures, we don't have this much information on repentance. We don't have this much information on confession. Yet there's no controversy over those two. But here we are with baptism 
And again, I think God knew. I think God could see, well, I know he can see into the future. He knows what's going to happen. And he knew that we would be here in America with all of these conflicting doctrines. And so for those who love the truth and are willing to take the time to really study this, uh, those individuals, you know, you, you can't even, how could you possibly argue with all of these truths? That, that's how I look at this. And that's why I feel very confident in preaching this necessity of baptism. Yeah, and that's also why belief only just doesn't make any sense. So when we kind of back up a little bit and look at the subject of baptism overall, you know, we did mention there's a lot of differences of you, you know, within the religious world. But Alan, which ones would you tend to say are the most uh, damaging or lethal or consequential? That's a a very complicated question. And and so let let's just take a few moments and set it up the way that it should be. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said that there should be no divisions among us. He said that we should be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. The mind is where the facts are, the judgments are the opinions we form regarding those facts. We read in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4 through 6, that not only is there one God and Father and one Lord Jesus Christ and one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, but there is also one hope of our calling. And maybe the most important statement, of course, for our subject today, there's only one baptism. And so we should all be speaking the same thing regarding baptism, regarding who is to receive baptism, regarding the importance of baptism, regarding the element of baptism, regarding the uh, the essential time factors in baptism. And yet, as we go out into the denominational world, we see that there is no unity at all. Uh, there is confusion over the mode of baptism. As we mentioned last week, some people sprinkle, some people pour a little water on the head, other people immerse. And that's confusing because it creates a situation where people are thinking in their minds, if, uh, if these people can't agree on these things, then the scriptures must not be clear. And of course, that was Jesus' concern in John 17. He said, I pray that they will be one, that the world will believe that you sent me. And this is one of the biggest problems today is people think, well, the Bible can't be understood. Look at all of the different divisions and ideas. Well, that's not true at all. It isn't that there are many different conflicting teachings on baptism. The problem is, is that people are not agreed. And they're not agreed because they won't study the scriptures and come to the same conclusion. One of the compliments that is paid in the scriptures is the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures every day to see whether the things Paul was preaching were true or not. And I, I wish people would do that. I would wish after they would hear a sermon, they would go home and study the scriptures and see if it's true. Uh, sprinkling cannot be a part of a baptism, which the word means burial, and which Paul says that baptism we are buried with him in baptism. Jesus went into the water and came up out of the water when he was baptized with John's baptism. 
John baptized in a place where there was much water because you need much water to immerse. And when the eunuchs saw the water, they both went into the water and came up out of the water. So although there is controversy over the mode of baptism, the true reality is, is that the scriptures only teach one thing on baptism. And, and as you said, and in a very consistent way from multiple you know, perspectives, you know, the meaning of the word, commands, the examples, the illustrations that you mentioned uh, even earlier. Uh, were you going to say something about uh, who should be baptized? Yeah, I wanted to address that. You know, we, we talked last week that one of the reasons that they went to sprinkling, well, there are actually two reasons. The first one was, as, as we noted, the individual who waited too late to be immersed, but the whole idea of baptizing infants, uh, that also came down from the Catholic Church. As we mentioned last week, in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, I was alive apart from the law, and it was only when the commandment came that sin came alive and I died. So it wasn't until Paul committed his first sin, when he was old enough to understand the nature of sin, that he died. And so babies are not sinners. Babies are born innocent. God is the father of our spirits. The body came through Adam, but the spirit came from God. But even, even more importantly are the inferences, the necessary inferences we'd have to draw. Jesus said, preach the gospel to the whole creation. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. So we just ask a simple question. Can a baby believe? You have to believe. You have to hear the gospel and believe it before you can be baptized. That was Jesus' point. You have to be born of water and the Spirit. You can't just be born of the water. But if you put a baby in the water, there's no spirit involved there because the Holy Spirit, the word has not been preached. It has not been accepted. It has not yet been believed. And so when Jesus said that, and of course, Peter, when he was preaching his sermon, he said, you have to repent, which means change your mind. A baby cannot repent. They, they cannot change their mind. They haven't, they haven't done anything yet. And so the, the fact that the scriptures say that Lydia and all her household or the Philippian jailer and all his house, well, we know that they had to be preached to. They had to believe. They had to repent. So we, we cannot be talking about infants here. We are talking about penitent believers, people who believe Christ died for our sins, he was buried and he rose again. People who believe that we are dying with him, buried with him, and raised with him. And so the only thing you can do with an infant is put a little water on them. But that's not baptism. Even though that's a term that people will use today. Uh, or maybe christening. Uh, right. Both of those are, are sometimes involved. In some ways, it kind of short circuits the thought process if they you know grow up later. People ask them, well, have you been baptized? And they would say, well, yeah, you know, as, as an infant. Mm, sorry, no, you were not really baptized according to the New Testament pattern based on these verses. Um, so what about the purpose? Is that, do you view that as consequential? Well, of course it's consequential. Many people are not baptized at all because they don't see it as a valuable thing. Other people have been taught that baptism is an outward sign of an inward grace. In other words, we're already saved. We're just baptized to put a seal on it. 
And I suppose if you took, took circumcision alone and you said that Abraham was already justified by his faith when he was circumcised, but it fails when you compare it to the, uh, the ark or to Moses or to the new birth. And so the baptism that Jesus demanded of us is absolutely essential. You're not saved. I think that's why we, we read in the Philippian jailer, he was baptized the same hour of the night. Because Paul didn't say, hey, let's wait till tomorrow when it's light. He didn't say, you know, this could be done next week or next month. Just just kind of wait because baptism is not really that important. But he didn't do that. He took them out the same hour of the night because Paul understood, just like Ananias had told him, what are you waiting for? Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins. So where are my sins before I'm baptized? Well, they can't be washed away if I still have them. So baptism is a critical, as I say, the children of Israel weren't saved till they went through the Red Sea. And Noah or Abraham was not in covenant relationship with God until he was circumcised. And no one who didn't get on that ark, when God closed the door, there were only eight people on the ark. And I'm sure when it started raining, there may have been some people who thought to themselves, you know, we kind of believe Noah, and now we can see the... the uh, uh, events that justify what he said. Let's go get on the ark. Well, it was too late. Uh, and so if we wait and we die, then we died without circumcision. We died without being on the ark. We died without going through the Red Sea. We died without the new birth. And so this, the necessity of baptism is clear. And there's an urgency there. Uh, whenever I preach to someone, I, I will tell them if they believe, it might be one o'clock in the morning, they say, well, let's just wait till tomorrow. I'm really tired. I say, we can't wait till tomorrow because if you were to die tonight, you would be going before God with your sins. They haven't been washed away yet. So the, uh, the purpose of baptism is to save. It is to wash away sins. It is to bring us into covenant relationship with God. It is to put us into Christ where we receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And again, that's the value of the types and the parables. Noah's Ark was essential. Circumcision, essential. Going through the Red Sea, essential. New birth, essential. While then, baptism is essential. And On, As no. I think we're kind of building up a composite picture here in terms of, you know, who has to do it according to the pattern the element which we've talked about water throughout the mode if you will has to be immersed again new testament pattern and the reason has to be according to the new testament pattern um but do you find a new testament pattern in terms of who does the baptizing so not not the person being baptized but the person administering it and and that is a uh, almost an enigma uh we read in acts chapter Two, that Peter said that repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the, one of the questions people like to ask, were the apostles baptized? Well, we know they were baptized with the baptism of John because as each one came in, we were told that they were disciples of John. 
So they had been baptized with the baptism of John, but as Paul told the people in Acts chapter 19 who had only been baptized with the baptism of John, John's baptism was pointing into the future, and Jesus' baptism is pointing to the past of his death, burial, and resurrection. So they, they were rebaptized. So and, and Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 at, that don't you understand that we were all baptized into, when we were all baptized into Christ, we were all baptized into the one body. So we all, so the, the apostles were baptized. So you ask the question, well, who baptized who? Somebody had to baptize them who had not yet been baptized. And so, you know, this idea that it can only be a priest or it can only be uh, a preacher or it needs to be uh, this or that, we, we just don't have any information on that uh, as, as the gospel went into all the world and people were preaching. We had this issue, as you well know, Jeff, when, when uh, a man was studying with us over the website and he wanted to be baptized and there was no church within 2,000 miles. And the churches that were there were speaking different languages. So we couldn't find anyone to baptize them. And what were we going to do? Take a plane all the way to India to, to do the baptism? So we told him that you need to be baptized by someone and then you need to baptize them. And of course, that's the only way they could do it. So it, it is an enigma because the scriptures just really don't deal with that. I mean, all of the baptisms that we see are performed by the apostles or the prophets or the preach or the preachers in the in the New Testament. But when those things came to an end, uh, we're just really uh, in a situation where we just can't be dogmatic. Preferably, you'd like to be baptized by a Christian who's already been baptized. And preferably, it's somebody who knows the necessity importance of baptism. But can you prove that that is the only way it can be done? And of course, the answer is the scriptures are really silent on that. And so... Well, and I think part of that reason too, Alan, is that the emphasis in the scriptures is on those who are being baptized exactly. and not those baptizing. Oh, and I've also heard, and you know, not much we can say about it, other variants or other controversies let's say you have to be baptized in a church building or you have to be baptized in a baptistry or you have to be baptized in running water you know in, in a natural source and and many other variations that you know basically that the scriptures don't support that people want to make a controversy out of there really isn't a controversy and, and you know there's a pitfall there as well well, I think sometimes we get bogged down in these kinds of details. We know that they were baptized. We know that the eunuch was traveling in a in a uh, chariot nowhere near. As a matter of fact, there weren't any church buildings in the first century. There weren't any baptistries in the first century. Uh, but they came to a certain water, and he said, there's some water. Now, the eunuch didn't say, oh, no, we can't be baptized in this. He just said, or Philip said, you must be baptized if you believe, and they went down into that water. Now, what kind of water was it? Well, if it mattered, God would have revealed it to us, but he didn't. It could have been a pond. It could have been a, uh, a river. It could have been... There just had to be much water. Yeah, there just right? had to be enough water. <laughs> enough to bury it. And uh, I see this when I go to Africa sometimes. They'll just find a little hole. There's no water within 
in 10, 10, 15 miles because in sub-Saharan Africa, they don't have a lot of rivers. So you'll find a little spot where the water is seeped up out of the ground and they'll, they'll find that and they'll baptize them in that. And I think that's admirable. It needs to be done quickly and as close as possible to where you are. So it doesn't, I don't think it matters what the, what the, what kind of water, whether it's baptistry water, purified water, chlorined water, stagnant water, running water. The scriptures don't address it. So I think that we're we're creating an issue that just isn't there. Well, and there's there's I guess, you know, we filled two shows talking about baptism and it's just I think helps to illustrate how much the Bible actually has to say about it and to the point you made, Alan, for those who would say belief only or that baptism is not necessary you can only conclude that they're not studying what the Bible says about it because the Bible is very clear that baptism is essential for salvation. And without it, we just have to conclude that we are not saved. Right. And I would encourage everyone who is hearing this and maybe is still confused that there are some uh, good tracks and good information about baptism out there and and don't let this go keep studying it I, I know that many of us have I was I was christened I was born in England and I was christened into the Anglican Church and when I heard the gospel at 19 I never even thought about the christening as a baptism but some of you have been baptized uh, maybe you've been baptized because it's an outward sign of an inward grace or maybe you've been baptized as an infant but Paul made it clear to those in Ephesus that if we have not been baptized into Christ, if we do not understand the power and necessity of baptism and realize that baptism is for the remission of sins, we really need to evaluate that because you don't want to go before God, not in Noah's Ark, not circumcised, not uh, going through the Red Sea with Moses, and not uh, being born again. And so give this some careful thought. Well, and to that point, at our website, we've got lots and lots of material. Uh, if you go to the uh, menu on the home page under the topics choice under B for baptism, uh, lots of articles there. Also on the main menu under the lessons button, uh, there's a, a lesson series on baptism with you know multi-part, you know, lots of pages, but more importantly, lots of scriptures. People can actually open their Bible. Uh, read, study, uh, and then hopefully make a proper application. And and that's what they need to do. We need to be, every, every one of us needs to be like the Bereans. I don't expect anyone here to accept what I've taught today, but I'd like you to go to the scriptures and see whether these things are so or not. And as I say, after preaching for over almost 40 years now, uh, I can tell you that I have become more and more and more convinced that baptism is the preeminent doctrine of the New Testament. And just for one reason only, gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Baptism is that form. It is the, it is the imitation of the death, burial. It's where I make his death, burial, and resurrection personal to me. It's where I die with him, and I'm buried with him, and I'm raised with him. And so please, please don't let this go, because... Baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Alan, for your thoughts on that. And we encourage our listeners to listen to both of these 
episodes and to also reference the material that Jeff mentioned on our website at BibleQuestions.org. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at BibleQuestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at BibleQuestions.org.